All right. Well, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Welcome back to the Insatiable Content Podcast. I am Vincent Rossmeyer, your fearless host. And folks, I woke up this morning, all the love was gone, and maybe that's because my papa never told me about right and wrong. That, that's right, we are back to talk about The Many Saints of Newark, the new Sopranos prequel movie that is out on both HBO Max and also showing currently in theaters. And aside from the usual disclaimers I give about this podcast containing both cursing and spoilers for whatever we're discussing, I'm also going to tip my hand a little bit more than usual this episode by saying up front, this will be by far the most negative review of any piece of content I've done so far in the show. Not because I thought this movie was awful, which it wasn't, but rather because I thought it was utterly pointless and a waste of time. And now you remember how when you were growing up, it was worse when your parents would calmly say they were deeply disappointed in you rather than just yelling at you. And don't think I haven't already employed this tactic as a parent myself. Well, that's how I felt about The Many Saints of Newark. I had so much excitement for this movie in the lead up to its release, only to then sit through its two hour runtime and wonder what the hell was that and why did I sit through it? So now I'm sure it will shock all of you who know me that I'm going to shit on something and will be quite enjoy doing it quite a bit. But this disappointment comes from my expectations being dashed so thoroughly. And in this time where we haven't had a lot of movies we're seeing, I so desperately wanted an amazing cinematic experience. And Many Saints just wasn't that for me. Um, But fortunately, on this podcast, it's not just my opinion that matters. And just because I love to hear people tell me I'm wrong, I actually have an incredibly special guest today and truly the only person I want to be discussing Many Saints with. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest for today, my good friend, Queens' own, Bob. He ain't here on business. He's only here for fun, pain. So Bob, I cannot wait to discuss this movie with you because I had such a milquetoast reaction to it, but also because I know you liked it more than I did and more than most reviewers out there. And so while as a Jets and Mets fan, you've proven yourself to have absolutely trash takes, I'm still willing to hear you out on this. So let's get into it. Welcome, my friend. Thank you, Vincent. I am excited to talk about this. I think you are being too much of a hater on this movie. <laughs> I, I think it's good. Just to kick us off, how many gabagools out of five would you give Many Saints of Newark? I think that's a great question, and I'd say probably 1.5. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. I didn't love it. I would say three, three and a half gabagools. Wow. Wow. I mean, I I think part of the reason this will be a good conversation is we are both huge Soprano fans, but you are probably even a bigger fan than myself. Um, And so I feel you have a good amount of expertise going in on this. And so I really want to see how much of this is you viewing this through rose colored glasses just because you like the series so much and how much of it is like you can actually convince me, um, you know, that this movie has merit. Um, yeah. So marinara, marinara colored glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, well, here, why don't we do, do this? We're going to start with what I think is the most glaring flaw of the entire movie, because, Bob, I'm going to put you push you back on your heels right to start. Um, and so let me give my spiel on this. And then I want to hear how you can justify the movie being quality and overcome, which this is just to me at least, damn close to an irredeemable flaw. So the first thing I didn't like was the attempt by The Sopranos to be woke. And so the most glaring and completely inexplicably offbeat part of the movie for me was the entire storyline featuring Leslie Odom Jr. He's known for his starring role in Hamilton. He's actually a great actor. I think he does pretty well with this part. He plays a character named Harold. 
And I'd even say, given that one of the major justified criticisms of The Sopranos was both its overt and subtle racism and its lack of diversity in the cast. And I mean, I think we all remember the Christopher Columbus episode as one of the worst episodes of The Sopranos ever, where the racism was just very overt. Um, I really actually welcome the idea of having a storyline with an actor who is a person of color in the movie. But Bob, the entire storyline seems seems so forced and such a non sequitur. Like, I didn't understand how it tied in with the rest of the movie, especially where we end up with Odom's character at the very end. And I, I honestly have no idea why he was included in this. I mean, I know the Newark riots and the uprisings were like during the 60s and 70s were a huge part of America. Um, and so they're a major part of our history that is actually overlooked and would have been concurrent with the action and the plot of the movie. But it just didn't make sense for me as the focus of a Sopranos movie. And we get seemingly no backstory on Odom's character. He just sort of appears. Um, I, like to, to give a little plot here, the movie centers on Dickie Maltesanti, who is the father of Chris Maltesanti, who is Tony's nephew in the series. And Dickie was not, not a major piece of the show, at least in my memory. Like they barely allude to him. Um, and so it's to me, it was already an odd choice to make him the centerpiece of this movie, but then to try to weave in his interactions with Odom just baffled me. And I just truly did not get the point. And was the Sopranos trying to be woke? Was it like trying to respond to all that criticism about having only white people in the show for so long? Because I didn't understand the Harold Dickey relationship. And it, to me, you know, spoilers coming, as I said at the beginning, the fact that Harold sleeps with Dickie's mistress in this at one point in the movie was also just so baffling. Like it, it. I didn't even understand how they had a connection sufficient to get to the point where they even have an affair. And then when you throw in the fact that I don't think the racial elements in this were handled all that deftly, and it felt a lot like a white person trying to respond to criticism of their work being racist rather than letting people of color talk to themselves, I just thought this was a really problematic narrative and the biggest flaw of the movie. So, Bob, tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah, I love doing that. Uh, <laughs> several several ways. So, I think big picture. I heard you say like I had no idea why the Harold plot was included in the movie. Yeah, and I do think there's an aspect of it that I appreciate is that it, you know it is sort of a response to The Sopranos, where on The Sopranos, like there are no black characters who get any sort of depth to them. None. Uh, they're generally like, <laughs> I remember there's like people interacting with Chris and like, you know, trying to kill people goes wrong. They're trying to rob a truck and somebody drops a gun and, you know, they're like not treated well. And so I think, I do probably think part of it was responsive to that criticism, but like, I think that's good. I think that was a good criticism of the show. And I think it's actually good to uh, place in the same way that The Sopranos like placed itself in the 2000s in a lot of ways, sort of in the historical times there, right? The FBI is talking about investigating Arab American people. Uh, there's like 9-11 references a lot. In the same way it does that, I think like, you know, they, it's good that the movie attempts to and does situate itself in the history of the times, which at that time, like Newark, late 60s, uh, it's transitioning, right? Like it used to be a lot of Italian people. Right. Black people are moving in. Black people are moving up in terms of neighborhoods, and Italian people are about to move out um, in mass. And so I, I kind of liked how it actually attempted to do that. It attempted to give some depth to a black character. Um, and like you said, I think Leslie Odom did a great job with it. Uh, I would say the part I was impressed by of 
the plot dealing with the black characters and the black actors was actually around the Newark riots. So I came in pretty scared of how uh, <laughs> David Chase, I don't know, an 80 year old <laughs> uh, white man with questionable politics was going to handle it. But uh, I thought they did a pretty good job. And coming from the perspective of like the Newark riots, right. As most of these big so-called riots were in the sixties, like the real history that's come out since is, is that it's not, you know, the bad part wasn't so much that black people were rioting and ruining some stores. It was that the government was turning the police on people and just murdering tons of black people. Completely. Right. And in Newark, 20 something black people, a mix of, uh, a bunch of elderly folks, a bunch of children, a bunch of young people um, were killed by the police during all the riots. And I was worried that, like, you know, the riots were just going to be portrayed as this terrible thing that happened. But, in fact, like, the movie does, I don't know, and this could be the these so-called marinara colored glasses I'm using, but uh, I think the movie does actually address the sort of depth of it, right? We see Leslie Odoms walking through the riots uh, and sees a young black man get killed by the cops right in front of him and yeah. the mother weep over it. Uh, and then, you know, soon after that, we see Dickie Moltisanti just kill Ray Liotta, uh, bring Ray Liotta across town. He gets like, he gets stopped by the National Guard, but the National Guard makes room for him because he's a white guy in a nice car. doesn't even think like, oh, let me see what's in this car. What's going on? Um, and, and then he successfully, you know, Dickie successfully blames Ray Liotta's murder on the riots. Right. And you use that as a scapegoat. And so I thought that was a little more, I thought that was a lot more deftly done than I thought it was going to be. Um, and sort of just like bought some credibility to the movie, I think, and credibility to the plot line um, involving, involving Harold. So I thought he was great. I think your point about him and having the affair with uh, Dickie's, uh, it's not Dickie's wife, huh? Dickie's. Dickie's dad's wife, ex-wife. Ex-wife. Yeah. <laughs> the weirdest mistress that. situation ever, yeah. Josephina, uh, Josephina, however you want to say her name. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that one did come out of nowhere, but I thought that was really good. And I'd, I'd watch more of uh, Harold's, Harold's story. I would too, just not in a Sopranos movie. And I guess for me, this, this gets me to my second point, which is I, I just didn't get the plot and the whole Dicky storyline and why this movie is about someone I I came in more of it thinking it was going and maybe this is just bad expectations on my part but I came into it thinking it was going to be more of a Tony origin story and it really wasn't that at all and like I I understand I I think you are you have some points there in terms of how Chase handled the Newark riots things. Although I would say Dickie also drives a convertible with the top open into the middle of the riots at one point, which just seemed again, like a very bizarre choice. Like who would be doing that? Like uh, he's not a stupid man. Why is he doing this? But I guess to me, like it just didn't, there wasn't, this didn't feel like a Sopranos movie. Um, And I think the plot part of that was just the, who they chose to focus on, but then just so many questionable choices in the plot um, overall. And so let, let me just give you a few here, Bob, like, and, and walk me through your reasoning on how these aren't just utterly preposterous. So the first one is, as you alluded to, Dickie just kills his dad, who's played by Ray Liotta. And on a side note, 
his face is almost unrecognizable from the time he was in Goodfellas. Like, it, <laughs> is it like too much of, I know, doesn't he have like his own tequila brand? I don't know if he's been drinking too much, if he had bad plastic surgery, but it, he's almost unrecognizable. But then the fact that, as we said, Dickie then begins an affair with the uh, wife of, ex-wife of his former father and no one is questioning that in this movie. Like, that's really weird. And then that same woman, Josephina, jo- Josephina, has been, who had been having married Dickie's dad, knew his temper, knowing that all these guys are in the motherfucking mafia and who is also from Italy and, or, like, probably has a sense of the mafia there. So she's probably aware of the sexist and misogynistic social norms that go along with men in the culture of that time. She then proceeds to tell Dickie she had an affair with Harold. Like, to me, it's like, she. why, why would anyone do that? She knows he's going to freak out and she's going to end up dead. It just, like, as a character motivation there, it made no sense. Like, Dickie obviously is a homicidal maniac and is going to do something to her, and he does. He kills her. Um, and so her death just seemed like, why did we have her at all in this movie at all if we were, he was just going to kill her off? And then there were other deaths that just I didn't think held through at all, like Junior Soprano, who is barely developed as a character. And I thought he would actually be more of a focus of this movie, along with like Janice, Tony's sister. But he commits the brazen act at the end that really ends the movie. And it's over a slight. It's over Dickie laughing at him at one point. So I guess they're all to me. Those are just like three examples of just a we just strange choices in this movie and if you're an avid watcher of the show like some of it just didn't feel congruous like i didn't tony's dad in this movie is much more violent than he was depicted on in the show like much more volatile much more much like just i i would say bordering on like insane and now like being married to who he was married to like there was not a whole lot of quality mental health in that family to begin with but like I don't know. It just, again, I just didn't feel this was a Sopranos movie. And then the plot just had so many holes. So am I wrong on this, Bob? I think we can agree that Ray Liotta looks like a crazy person (laughs) in both of his roles. And that too is like, (laughs) you know, like Ray Liotta gets killed 25 minutes in. And you're like, oh, well, you know, that was a fun little part. And then shows up five minutes later in the role of a twin brother that we had never heard of before. Which was so weird. So weird. Yeah. So that was all over the place. I think the part about, I think where Dickie takes Giuseppina as his gumar, which is a word we haven't said enough in this podcast. It's true. It's Uh, really unused for not saying it. Gumar, gumar. Anyway, uh, I think that part, I don't know. I kind of think, I kind of could see it. I don't know. I think like, one, there's like a generational thing a little bit where, uh, I mean, this not to, you know, not to compare the Payne family to the Sopranos, but my... uh, I don't know where you're going with this, but I like it. I know. This is great. My grandma, uh, rest in peace to all the people involved with this story, but uh, my grandma was married to a man, uh, they had a kid, and then the husband passed away suddenly. Um, and And so this was like, I don't know, 1950. And so my grandma you know, who was probably 25 at the time, 30, immediately got married to 
her dead husband's brother. Um, and in part because like there was, you know, it's 1950 for a woman. Uh, she actually did have a college education, but still for a woman in New York City, like what is she going to do? She has a four-year-old. Um, and so I think there was something around sort of like family, uh, marriage, like gender, women being able to work as a single woman um, and things like that. Uh, now, obviously, they didn't get married. In, and obviously, uh, your family member didn't, no member of your family killed no. your grandfather. No, there was no murder involved, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think, okay, so then on the, so then it's like, okay, so Dickie is, you know, a psychopath, a sociopath, whatever it is. Um, and I think that is like, that's the point of Jessapina being there um, beyond like the scenery also being very beautiful. Uh, her, the, like her purpose in the story to me is to show how Dickie is, yeah, I mean, Dickie's just like a way crazy sociopath in the same way Tony was, right? Yeah. Which is to say he can be like very charming, very friendly, like often, you know, like it's this like weird thing, right? Like Tony cares about horses on the show, cares about his daughter so much. Like Tony picks certain things to care about. Yeah. Um, and in the same way, Dickie like does look out for Tony a bunch um, on, in the Many Saints of Newark um, tries to do right by him, even by kind of ignoring him towards the end. Like that's him trying to be a better sort of father figure to him. Um, but then it's just, you know, and then also like takes up Jessapina as a cause and kills Ray Liotta because of it. Um, but then, you know, out of nowhere will kill people. Uh, you think, I don't know, for half the movie, I sort of think like, oh, wow, he, you know, he's a little nicer than the old generation. He's trying to stand up for this woman who got beat. And then it's like, okay, now this guy's just as bad as all of them. He'll put his hands on a woman who murder this woman in a just brutal, brutal way in the water. So yeah. I think the whole, her whole presence is really just to fill in quickly that, you know, Dickie's this sort of split personality, just like Tony was, where he could be loving in certain ways to certain members of his family. And he can also be like the single worst human in, in the history of the world. So, I mean, if you're, if you're trying to sell me on the idea that like, Tony looks after this guy and models his relationship on him and just eventually his personality, having that dual split personality. I can sort of see that, but then I need, would need more from their relationship in the actual movie. Because um, yeah. I thought that was actually quite underdeveloped if we're supposed to believe that Tony and it really looks up to him. Because like to me, when Dickie decides to stop talking to him at the end of the movie, it's both inexplicable and it's also like, all right, well, I don't, I haven't seen enough to understand why they have this close of a relationship, but, um, well, anyway, yeah. I appreciate your point. Get, get, Cole, to, yeah. Give yeah. me something that you liked. What, like, what, what did you unabashedly like about this movie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uncle junior, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know how you could say uncle junior was uncle junior was great in this. Corey, is he's a, Corey Stoll. Is that the actor's name? He's on, you know, I wanted he, more uh, of him. He was, he was one of the few good things about this he movie. Was awesome. Yes. He liked, and he did a really good job of, you know, I mean, so, okay, all these guys playing, all the actors playing the famous Sopranos characters are, like, doing a little bit of an imitation, right? Completely. And so, like, the uh, Silvio and Big Pussy characters are just, like, cartoon characters. Completely. Right? Agreed. Uh, uh, I think Corsol got to, like, he acted like Uncle Junior, but wasn't doing a complete imitation of him. And he got to this kind of, like, you know, like, Uncle Junior's always, like, 
looking out for who's about to get him, afraid that somebody's about to stab him in the back, self-conscious about himself in, in his role and that in The Sopranos in the show, right? He's always like self-conscious about power and who's coming for him, who's next and who's lying to him. And he'll be very nice to people um, and then quietly lay back with Tony and say, oh yeah, it's him, we gotta take this guy out. And so I thought he did a really good job. And I thought that like, you know, I, he didn't have the most major part in it, but I actually thought the plot too, where he, you know, where he ends up killing Dickie is like uh, both surprising in terms of kind of the Sopranos story, not a thing we knew. Um, and who killed Dickie, right? is like a big sort of plot point at a few different moments in the Sopranos. Yeah. Um, and so that was interesting. And I thought that kind of like filled in Uncle Junior's character more a little bit where, you know, Uncle Junior kind of always had it out for Chris on the show. He did. Uh, and then we'd always tell Tony like, oh, you know, you and your dad, Johnny boy and Uncle and Dickie, you know, we're always so tight. We're three super friendly people. We ran North Jersey. And in fact, like, you know, he just killed them over, <laughs> over like, a small amount of slights. I, right? The smallest, yes. Yeah. And and so, I don't know. I thought he was great. I thought the... I don't know. You know, it was beautiful. I thought the setting was great. Uh, I, I think that's fair. That is, I think... The work was cool. It was extremely well filmed. The cinematography uh, was gorgeous. Um, and yeah. I guess just to your junior point, the one one thing I would say that I did like about this is that it has caused me to go back and rewatch The Sopranos. And to your point, like it is interesting with the Heinz, uh, you know, like the benefit of time and viewing how Junior is in this movie. I remember Junior, Uncle June from The Sopranos as being much more of a forceful figure, you know, and being much more of a thorn in... Tony's side from like a equal opponent rather than like, especially on the rewatch, like more of like Tony's mom, right? Who is just like sort of a like master manipulator and just truly one of the most well fleshed out reprehensible characters on a TV show I've ever seen. Like I have such a visceral reaction to the mom on The Sopranos. It's it's like hard for me to have watch scenes with her, but Junior was much weaker and much more wishy-washy and like, much more ineffectual than I had remembered. He wasn't an equal adversary to him. And so to I do think, the, to your point, I think it's legit to say how that this movie tied that in in a way that he was a man driven by slights and insecurities his whole life. Um, and that's really all he ever did. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, yeah. And, I, 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 and to me, if this does cause people to rewatch The Sopranos like I am, I think that's good because it's, it's even better than I remember. Just like when I went back and watched The Wire, rewatched The Wire and Breaking Bad, those shows are those shows hold up. It's even better than I remembered. There are some cringe-worthy moments on The Sopranos of stuff that hasn't aged well, but overall, it's beautifully scripted. The plots are so inc- intricate, like, and everything holds together and alludes to something else. It's just, it's like to me. I know people do this with The Office, where they just sort of have it on in the background all the time. To me, The Sopranos can be that type of show. It is such a world that I'm happy to be in, even though it's an utterly violent and just terrible world that I wouldn't actually yeah. want to be a part of. It's, it's like the same reason I've watched Godfather and Goodfellas, you know, fifty or a hundred times in my life, just because it's absorbing. So, I will give it that. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the other things in the movie that stood out, uh, 
the Livia Livia Soprano. That's her name, right? The mother yeah. character, like she was great. She her was friend. even looked She's like her. Actress. She looked like her. Uh, looked a little bit like Edie Falco too, which was an <laughs> interesting and odd choice for them to make. Uh, just some more therapy sessions on that. But, yeah, very uh, Oedipal. She was. I mean, she was great. Just put on a clinic. That scene where she was with the counselor was good. And I think, I mean, I think your description right there of the Sopranos being this kind of intricate universe, you know, where things mostly move slowly and you're kind of like, especially on the first viewing, you don't, you know, you're trying to follow the plot. And so you don't see all the connections and even it's hard to like comprehend exactly everything happening. Um, and then when you rewatch it or catch another episode here or there, you catch some more connections. Like to me, this, I, I think this movie fit right in there with that at its best. Not every part of it did, but at its best. I think with like the uh, Tony's parents, with those characters, with their interactions with each other, with Chris, with um, when they're driving in the car and uh, Johnny Boy shoots through Livia's hair, um, which is a moment reference on The Sopranos, but actually happens in the movie. I think like at its best, the movie kind of fits in with that universe nicely. Um, I do think the, I mean, I think big picture like fitting that sort of show and that sort of approach in a two hour movie um, is just really hard. True. And like pacing is kind of off, right? I think we have some awesome scenes in this movie that are very similar to things on The Sopranos. Um, like the scene where Tony's sister is getting confirmed. It's this like long scene where you see many people talking about different things and different plot action points happening. Um, you know, a few scenes over meals and things like that. But then it's like, you know, they want to keep it two hours and they need to move the action along and they need to have this person get killed and this person get killed and Tony needs to have some spot in it. So it felt a little crowded, hard to fit stuff in in two hours. Um, but yeah, and, and it's definitely, like, honestly, and to some, <laughs> we do, there were some laughable points in this. I, I thought James Gandolfini's son did a good job acting and yeah. a good job in the movie, but like some of the, I mean, it's just really hard to play that character. And Agreed. so... <laughs> And just some of the points where he's in it, you know, they feel like parody. Almost, yes. Right. It's yes. like an SNL clip from 10 years ago where they make a joke about there being a teen soprano show. And this like felt like that at points. Right. And, you know, he's stealing an ice cream truck and giving out ice cream. He's fighting on the street and uh, trying to impress his future wife when fighting on the street. They need to drop her name so that everyone knows that it's the Edie Falco character. So, you know, I don't know if that's what fan service is. I think people talk about that with like Marvel movies a lot. Like they make random plot choices and include scenes just to kind of give fans a little bit of a thrill. Uh, to me, the Tony character and the Silvio and the big pussy characters all felt a little bit like that. Agreed. Way over the top. And I, I think to your point too, Bob, I think part of the problem is I'm just not sure this type of thing, this type of show fits well into a movie because I actually had some of the same criticisms of the Breaking Bad movie that came out. I don't know, maybe it was a year yeah. ago, where I was happy to be back in that world, but also disappointed in what they were giving me. And part of that is the compressed nature of a movie, and also that like, I don't know, in in some of this, and I'll be interested to see what happens with the Game of Thrones uh, TV. Uh, subsequent TV shows that are coming out that there's a part of it. It's like you're living in this really contained, really controlled, uh, thought out universe for all these shows and you're embedded in that. And then when you're expanding it, 
to either before, after, or adding in characters that are like running on a parallel trajectory, I just don't know if it always works, especially in the movie format. Um, and maybe this would have worked much better for me if it had been a five episode miniseries where we get more fleshing out of the Harold character. Um, or like, I didn't even completely understand why Josephina was like with Dickie's dad, right? Like that just, it just seemed, yeah. yeah. So I, you know, yeah, yeah, I agree. There's something hard about it where like we get so, um, the characters we've like lived with and loved for so long. Yeah. Right. Like we hear Christopher's voice at the beginning and we hear Edie Falco's voice uh, at one. And it's like the, these characters were so used to and then trying to tell new stories about them is hard. Yeah. It's really kind of delicate and a hard thing. And uh, I don't know if they succeeded all the way, but I sure enjoyed it. And I like probably this movie could have been much worse and I would have liked it and enjoyed it. Honestly. <laughs> there, were points, there were points where it was really good. And uh, there were points where it was just like blah, and I still enjoyed it quite a bit. Did you just one final thing on this? Did you? I I really disliked the Chris voiceovers at the beginning and the end. I thought that was completely unnecessary. And also, like I always had a problem with the dream sequences in The Sopranos. But then when we were going to do uh, post mortem voiceovers, that was just and like the very final. Uh, image in the movie of the hand coming up from the coffin. I was just like, come on. Yeah. Like, what, what are we doing I, here? I, I could, uh, I can listen to Christopher Moltisanti talk about things. <laughs> so I'm happy with that. Uh, he's also like, a he's like a bit of a New York character. So I feel like you see him on the news every few weeks talking about something on the Upper West Side. So I like him. The end was cringeworthy for sure. And you know, the theme of the show starts on as it, as it, uh, locked in on Tony's face. Um, and I thought the end was definitely a bit cringeworthy. Let me give one last kind of macro. You know, you're a big picture thinker. Oh, am I? I, I, one, I, I? Am I? I appreciate that. One macro take that might get you to appreciate a little bit. There's like, uh, you know, there's that long New York Times article that I'd highly recommend people to read about The Sopranos from a week or two ago. That was why. It's basically asking like, why are all these 20-somethings uh, watching The Sopranos and posting TikToks of like Christopher Moltisanti wearing a neck brace yep. and saying like, LOL, the government's going to shut down. Like what is happening? Um, and the answer is like young people, one of the answers uh, is that they made The Sopranos free during the pandemic on HBO Max. But another answer is that young people, you know, see this as like, it's a showing America failing, right? In the yes. 90s and 2000s. And it kind of creeps in on people. Tony mentions it a bunch, but then by the end, the entire world is collapsing. Everything's going terrible and everything goes to black. And what I appreciate about this movie is like, <laughs> you know, everybody talks, you know, Tony on the show talks all the time about how in the good old days, it used to be great, right? Uh, Dickie Moltisanti and Johnny Boy and Uncle Junior were running things and what a great time it was to be alive in the 60s in New Jersey. You know, the country was better. And, you know, they go back and show this and the country was shit then too, right? There's no time that America's been great. There's no time that things have been great. Uh, back then, they were dealing with the same things. You know, Uncle Drew, you know, Tony's close uncle killed his other close uncle. Uh, his dad barely ever spoke to his wife. You know, like, all these things were terrible then, too. And, you know, we can talk about the sort of collapse of America, but America's never been, <laughs> never been great. It's been collapsing the whole time, and... You know, 1967 and 70 wasn't a whole lot better than 2010 or 2020. So, 
there's your sort of macro view on it that uh, uh, the world is a terrible place, according to David Chase. But, and David Bob, I actually think that is the best argument you could have made to convince me of uh, the merits of this movie, because I would completely agree. You know, I do think that the thread that runs through show the shows like Sopranos and The Wire and, and even Breaking Bad is this idea of like both individual and American decline and to tie it into the idea that, you know, there was never this idealistic state. There was never, you know, uh, an America to make great again, um, I think is really perceptive on your part. And I, I will actually agree with that. So we will actually agree on uh, finish our review of this uh, with some consensus. So well done, Bob Payne. There we go. All right. Well, I I'm going to get in. You were also such a breaking bad head. So we'll have to. Uh get back on when Better Call Saul, when they finally released that last season. Most underrated show on TV right now, and no one talks about it. It is so good, and I would love so, to have you back to talk about it. Yep. Good. So kind of after the whole review, are you still at the 1.5 gobble ghouls, or did I get you get you up a little bit? I think you got me to 1.75. Amazing. Yeah. We will take it. Well, yeah, absolutely. So now that, I mean, that's what? That's 17... Uh, 0.5% is pretty close to Zach Wilson's completion percentage, isn't it? So there we go, New York Jets. Oh, I, I got to just, the last Payne family connection to this movie, as we sign off, is that a, fa- a Payne family member is in this movie. No way. Uh, uh, Nancy Payne, my mother, former, former extra, star New York City area extra. This was like the last movie she did before the pandemic. And in the opening scene where Ray Liotta is meeting his wife off the boat, She's one of the like hundreds of extras walking around at the dock in Newark. Um, and if you stop it, it's around like 2.15, 2.16. You can catch Nancy Payne on there for a minute. Bob, I'm going to act like we had that all planned and I knew that. And that's part of the reason I had you on. Uh, not just because, <laughs> you know, you're basically a New Jerseyan uh, in heart and spirit, given your oh, whoa, whoa, love, okay. given your love of Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's awesome. And I hope everyone... Uh, Everyone uh, appreciates that your mom is in this movie um, and we'll leave aside all mom jokes going forward. So um, um, before I before I let you leave, I'm going to do my four little segments here that I do at the end of every show and would love for you to jump in uh, with any opinions you have on them. But the first one is uh, trying to have a civilization here rant of the week. And Bob, I think this is another thing we're actually going to agree. Um, and that is, you know, given that we have very similar po- uh, uh, politics, I just can't hear one more story this week from the news to the podcast NPR, where every single story is pushing this narrative of Democrats in disarray. And it's all the the fault of the progressive wing of the party, which, by the way, is not even that progressive. Um, And that is the reason Biden's major pieces of legislation haven't been passed. And there's never there. It always is operating from the assumption in all these stories that it's the progressives that have fucked everything up rather than ever acknowledging that one, like we're even having this debate because Republicans are stone age recalcitrant, like just Neanderthals who refuse to put forward anything that could actually help the country. And then you have people like Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema who have no rhyme or reason to why they object to things other than wanting to look like they're fiscal hawks. I, I don't know. I can't get into the minds of these people because they clearly don't have, they don't start from policy and say what's going to help the most amount of people. They start from like, what's going to make me look good. And so to me, that is no different in, in terms of being a sociopath than the people we were just talking about in The Sopranos. 
but I would just like for once, just once for news outlets to cover these things in that way and call Republicans what they are rather than just trying to blame any sort of people who have even the slightest interest in progressive change as being behind the reason that we can't have nice things in the United States. I mean, I fully agree. I think there's a tiny bit of coverage that's a little better than it was 10 years ago on this with Obamacare or 11 years, whatever. Uh, I think, and I also can just curate my Twitter list so that I only follow political journalists. <laughs> fucking clue. Um, but I think the main point you said that's right. It, like, I mean, who exactly is who here? Like, is Joe Manchin Tony? Is Joe Manchin uh, Finn Leotardo? Like, I, I don't know exactly where the metaphor goes, but we should probably pursue he, you that. You know who he is. You know who he is. He's Richie Aprile. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So well, we can leave that there. If, uh, not not advocating for him to have an end like Richie April, but yeah. um, maybe politically I am. Um, all right. And then on to the trust the process segment. This is where I give uh, some recommendations for the week. And Bob, I'm glad you're on this too. Bob is a fellow New Orleanian now. Uh, we both live here. And we are just like some, you know, I shit on this city sometimes. It can be really hard living here when, you know, we don't always have modern conveniences like roads you can drive on or predictable trash pickup. Um, but for a city this size, especially with things starting to reopen, we like I can't imagine living anywhere else when it comes to like our food and culture. I mean, I had multiple amazing meals this week. Our restaurants are back. Um, highly recommend Jewel of the South and Josephine Estelle to anyone who is going out. But like also recently been to places like Ancora and N7. And we are just like a wash in amazing restaurants. And then Bob, I know you were out at shows again this week at Tipitina's and truly it makes me, when New Orleans is like this, the weather's nice, everywhere else truly feels like Cleveland. And so for as much as I shit on this city, sometimes I did think it deserved uh, some shout outs because it is just has so much to offer, especially compared to most other places in the U S. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Coquette was the latest place I went recently to eat. That was great as always and is always amazing on magazine street yep it's fantastic too all right for the sink into the couch segment for this week um where you know you're contemplating what to watch or to do late at night i thought about recommending squid game here but i become so immersed in that show uh that i think it deserves its own pod that i'll be doing soon instead i'm just going to gush on one of my favorite bands ever and i think bob i've tried to convince you of this as well um the band lord huron to me they are the soundtrack for driving the open expanse of the west if i could live anywhere in america it would be out west and every time i hear their albums uh, I develop new appreciations of their music. I'd recommend for anyone that is not familiar with them to start with their album, Lonesome Dreams, and progress from there. And for people who actually appreciate words and lyrics uh, and music, Bob, and I think out of our friend group, you and I are the only people out of our friend group who actually have that uh, appreciation. They also have great lyrics. Um, so I highly recommend them, listen intently to them and um, you know run away with them and it'll all make sense which is you know, one of their best lyrics ever in a song I like them they're a good band I don't love them as much as you but they are very good uh, my the song I've been playing far too much uh, is this Brooks and Dunn song with Casey Musgraves I, Neon Moon that they just put out it's like an old Brooks and Dunn song that has come back it came back on TikTok with just dumb 20 year old white people doing TikTok dances to it that are terrible, but the song and particularly Casey Musgraves 
is awesome and I've been playing it far, far too much. I mean, I think going forward, Bob, you're going to have to give me a warning if you're going to invoke country music on this show because that's just, that is completely, completely wrong for me. Um, oh, well, next, well, next, you know. next you'll be recommending NASCAR or something like that. <laughs> um, all right, final thing of the week, what I thought pooped the bed and while um, obviously many saints of Newark uh, would seem the obvious choice here. I feel like if I needed to give a second, I, I'm going to throw in a book recommendation, which I'd like to do more of. Um, so the book is called The Premonition by Michael Lewis, who is always one of my favorite writers, also from New Orleans. So there's a tie there. Um, but his book, The Premonition, is the best thing I've read on the pandemic. Um, so why am I including it in the poop the bed section if it's an actual great book? Well, it's not the book itself, but the way that he reveals how poorly the CDC responded to the pandemic. And it seemed like a closed-minded, regressive institution that had no real handle on what was going on. And obviously I'm not a medical expert, but when you have a journalist that has gone this deeply on the subject and really has a firm grasp of it and is really exposing the flaws, man, it was disheartening. I mean, it really makes you recognize as an adult that there's like no safety net out there um, you know, you grow up with some idea that like the people in charge have some idea what they're doing. And as this book will reveal to you, and I think that's probably a thread through all of Michael Lewis's books is that, no, there's really no one in charge. And all these people who are running things are just as clueless and driven by the same petty motivations and squabbles as like someone that in any other business or any other institution. So um, if you had any faith left in our institutions, this book will certainly help to extinguish them thoroughly for you. So I recommend it with the caveat that you will probably be even more depressed about the pandemic when you're done. And you know, it fits in with The Sopranos. It does. Everything's in decline. Everything is death. All institutions are terrible. From Michael Lewis. Tony Soprano. <laughs> um, well, on that very uplifting and cheery note, we are going to wrap this up. I've really, Bob, thank you so much. I didn't know we had a celebrity in our midst uh, with your mom. So uh, that made this even better. I really appreciate you coming on. And yeah, when Breaking Bad, I mean, um, when Better Call Saul comes back, we can come on and do not just a deep dive on that, but also on Breaking Bad in general. So thanks so much for joining me, Bob. This was great. Thanks, Vincent. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Uh, and look, be on the lookout for the next episode of the Insatiable Content Podcast. This is Vincent Rossmeyer, and I'll talk to you soon.